0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. This is Death, Sex, and Money. It's like... Yeah, you're going to die one day. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Where I come from is called doing the hibbity-dibbity. And need to talk about more. Now y'all look money hungry, and that's good. I'm Anna Sale. And this episode is a little different. I talked to writer Kevin Powell in front of a live audience here in New York City a few weeks ago. And I want to share that conversation with you. I first met Kevin when I was a kid, watching MTV in West Virginia and getting to know seven strangers who moved into a house and changed television forever. Kevin was on the first season of The Real World. He's also an activist, writer, a chronicler of hip hop. But our conversation focused on his latest book. It's called The Education of Kevin Powell, A Boy's Journey into Manhood. And it focuses on a part of his past he's not proud of his quickness to anger and violence, including against women. I wanted to ask him about that. Please join me in welcoming Kevin Powell. He started in Jersey City, where Kevin was born in 1966.
1: You know, it's interesting. I have no memories of the 60s. Um, the 70s is when things became real for me, but I uh, lived with my mother and my aunt Kathy. Uh, they had migrated from the South together, along with my other aunt, uh, Bertie. And my mother and Aunt Kathy ended up living together with my uh, cousin Anthony. He was literally born three days before me in the same year. And it's almost as if my Aunt Kathy was coming out of the hospital after, after giving birth. My mother was going into the hospital. And we were tremendously poor. Um, you know, I always tell you to people, people see me now and they, they think I come from some different background. I'm like, no, I actually come from tremendous poverty. Because can you imagine... Um, two single mothers, you know, young women in their 20s, their early 20s, raising two sons. And my Aunt Kathy had a bed in the living room, and my mother and I shared a bed in the bedroom. This was the first eight or nine years of my life. That was my family. That's what I knew. That was my reality. And and we did the best that we could with limited circumstances, you know.
0: So your mom moved up. North as a teenager, what was she looking for? Where was she leaving?
1: Money. I mean, opportunity. Money. She was leaving South Carolina. Um, she grew up, you know, uh, working farms, picking cotton, things like that. And uh, they brought the values of the South with them. You know, a work ethic. My mother always told the stories of how she started picking cotton at the age of eight. So when my cousin Anthony and I were eight years old, our mothers did what they, you know, were taught. They put us to work. So we started bagging groceries as little boys in Jersey City. And, you know, to this day, my friends out there know what I'm talking about. I, I'm probably up at five thirty, six o'clock every morning working. Like, this is just ingrained in me because of how I was raised, you where, know.
0: Where was your dad?
1: He was a rolling stone, you know. Uh, my father uh, was at least about 11, 12 years older than my mother. Um, he had money, you know. He was actually a truck driver, and so he was driving. He had. I remember he had a house. I saw him probably two or three times. When I was a little boy, uh, he bought me my first bike, my first watch, only because my mother asked him to, you know. And, you know, back in those days in the 70s uh, and 80s, it wasn't really like uh, this thing around child support. You just kind of said, hey, can you help us? And I'll never forget the day, as I described in the book, you know, when I was eight years old, it was a rainy day. And, you know, just to put this in context, folks, you know, things we take for granted now, we didn't have a telephone. Not only did we have a a uh, situation where it was two mothers and two sons in a one-bedroom apartment, we had no house phone. And we, I didn't have, I didn't even know what a colored TV looked like until the 80s. You know, I remember going to friends' houses and their TVs were different than ours. I was like, what's wrong with their TVs? It was color, you know. Mm -hmm. And my mother on this day you know, went to the drugstore and she took me with him. as a rainy day and she asked my dad, uh, you know, can you help us? You know, can you help us? And he actually caught a really bad attitude and said, you know, you know what? You lied to me. He's not my son. I'm not going to give you a near nickel. That's the phrase that he used to my mother because he was also from the South. So I guess that was a Southern term or something. And he hung up the phone with my mother. And what I remember is that it, it devastated her because I think the reality kicked in that I've got to do this by myself. Keep in mind, I'm eight years old. So that meant the next 10 years, because the way I was raised, you know, and I think this is a lot of families uh, I've seen, you know, 18 is kind of like that cutoff, like you got to go to college or go to the military or do something. But that's when you're an adult. And my mother realized, you know, I've got to do 10 years of this by myself now. And we were on welfare and food stamps and government cheese. When I think about some of the money that I make now as a speaker at colleges and corporations, I literally make in one speech what my mother made in one year raising me by herself.
0: Hmm. Did you realize, as an eight-year-old boy, that that was going to be the end of your relationship with your father?
1: <sighs> yeah, it was a there was a finality to it, and it was the beginning of this hole in me as a as a as a child, feeling like there was this void. And you start to do what a lot of children do—you start to blame yourself for that situation, you know. And that's what I felt a lot. And, um, you know, I was a, not only was I a voracious reader as a child, but I watched a lot of TV. And so, when I, every year at school, they would ask, well, what's your mother's name? I'd say, Shirley. And then they'd say, what's your father's name? One year it would be like James, like James Evan from Good Times. Another year would be like Michael, like Michael Brady from the Brady Bunch. You know what I mean? I would just make up names of people that I saw on TV, uh, because I didn't want to say, I don't have a father. You know what I mean? And it was a, it was a profound, uh, uh, loss that I carried carried with me into my adult life, as I as I talk about, you know.
0: You were a brilliant little boy. Stuck oh. out. Your mom took you to the library. You took to reading. Your teachers, you write in your report cards, noted that you excelled in school, and also noted that you had trouble getting along with other kids.
1: I had problems. <laughs>
0: um, where do you think that came from?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of things. Um... One, my mother was incredibly strict. Let me put it this way. My mother did the best that she could with what she had. And so, you know, you think about it. She's a poor black woman from the South. She's in the North, which is technically a foreign country for us like an immigrant coming from you know a foreign country and you're trying to adapt culturally to this space you know the first man that you fall in love with you get preg- pregnant by him and then he just disses you kicks you to the curve and now you've got to deal with you know a northern environment which is foreign you've got to deal with the, uh, the abandonment you've got to work you've got to survive and so my mother was angry and my anger came out of that it came out of you know the abandonment by my father um and so you know I think I began to believe that it was just a part of my life, you know, because it was everywhere. It was inside the household, it was outside the household. You know, my aunt Bertie and my mother always argued and cursed each other out and things like that. This is what they knew.
0: How old were you when you first landed a punch on someone?
1: When I landed a punch on someone, probably three years old, (laughs) probably my cousin Anthony. Part of it, it's crazy to say this to some people, but part of it is it's drama, it's theater, it's entertaining. But at the same time, you realize that should not be normal, you know, that we are just violent people. And this is the way we deal with things, you know. But growing up, that's all I knew.
0: So you. You get into Rutgers? Yeah. After graduating high school. Yeah. You and your cousin were the first in your family to finish high school?
1: Yes. Right, I mean right they literally go right from uh go through uh grade school to high school cuz my aunt Bertie went back and got a GED at some point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So two high school graduates out of your house, house household, you get a scholarship to Rutgers. Yeah. It's a huge accomplishment for you and your mom.
1: It was free. That was great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about what happened at Rutgers and, and in particular back on the theme of violence and, and and you didn't graduate from Rutgers. No, I
1: got kicked out of school
0: and there were a series of incidents.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm just going to name them and you can describe them in detail. Mm -hmm. A, A woman, you hit a woman in the head with a stapler Threw it. Yeah. Um, you, your first roommate, you came to blows with him, uh, after arguing in the room, and you were assigned to a new um, room, and then the final incident was you pulling a knife. Got in an argument with a woman and pulled a knife on mm-hmm. her. When you think back on those moments, what do you remember happening in your body when you chose to do those things?
1: Well, let me say like this: um, what people need to understand. Just because someone is now in a college environment, you know, or in a corporate environment, or any environment, you know, that's supposed to be a positive space, doesn't mean that they have healed at all from where they came from. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, the thing that people need to understand is that you are carrying around literally all the pain and trauma that you had experienced in the first 18, 19 years of your life in my case, you know, what I experienced, you know, and it was deep, it was deeply ingrained. There had been no therapy, there had been no yoga, there had been no meditation, there had been nothing. It was like, okay, you work hard, you know, you've had these incidents growing up, you know, and things that you also we talk about is the violence inside the household, the violence I experienced outside the household. I was brutalized by the police when I was 15 years old, which I describe in detail, a white police officer in Jersey City. All that had been a part of my reality. And to me, you know, when I got to that space, you know, you're going to act out. You know what I mean? You're going to act out because there was no healing going on at all. There was no concept of self-love at all. You know, those things were actually foreign to my vocabulary at that time. And, you know, what do you do when you get upset? At least when I was growing up, you you're angry, you lash out, you know, and it's inevitable that there's going to be a series of explosions because it's like a walking time bombs. You know what I'm saying? Um... It's me. I don't deny who I am or who my, what my past was. And the reason why I put all that in the book is like, you have to be honest about this stuff and take people through the process of it, you know?
0: Yeah. So I I just, if you can take me back to that moment when you were arguing with the woman and you chose to pull the knife, like what was going on?
1: We were arguing. And um, it's ironic. We were in the same organization, the Black Student Union. It was called the African Student Congress. But actually, you know, in my mind, because this is my, if I can use the term, my my hood mind, which is I'm not going to use the knife. I'm just like, yo, back off, homie. You know what I mean? I didn't even think anything of it because the world I came from, that's how we rolled. And so for me... The context of it, we had just brought Louis Farrakhan to our school. I was getting death threats as the leader of the Black student, the African Student Congress organization, and that was why I was carrying, carrying a knife. You know what I mean? And you felt threatened. I felt threatened because we were getting literally death threats, you know, from fellow students anonymously. You know, oh, why would you bring this person to the school? Well, the reason why we brought people to the sc- him to the school is because folks told us that we couldn't bring him to the school. And us as a student of color, like, we're not going to let anyone tell us who we can and cannot bring to the school because we know we pay as much tuition or we have as much rights to student organizations as anyone else. And then you couple that with the fact that you have students of color who literally are going to a majority white school for four years and we can't just be normal students. We actually have to also be advocates against racism, you know, or in a situation of women of color, advocates against racism and sexism. So it was almost inevitable that I was going to get, I was going to explode in some way, you know what I mean? Because of what I was feeling. That doesn't excuse it. But at 18, 19, 21, 22 years of age, you're not thinking about that, you know?
0: So you were, you were already activated. You were an activist. Racially. So did, was there not a flash of, I see that I'm trying to dominate this woman?
1: No. Not at that age. Most men are ignorant. Let's be honest about it. Most men are ignorant, you know. Um... All I thought about was race. That was my transformations I talk about in the book, where I became aware of who I was as an African person, an African American person, and that had a profound effect on me. And as I say in the book, I remember how women, student leaders would say, Well, hey, what about how you relate to us, to all of us, you know what I mean? But it was just not a part of our reality. And I just didn't think about it. It wasn't until later I was like, Oh my God, you know. And I even say, you know, I would even say some of the male speakers, most of the male speakers we brought, none of them ever brought the issue up.
0: Do you remember telling your mom? that you were kicked out of Rutgers, and why?
1: Yeah. And, you know, my mother said a couple of things to me. You know, you need to keep your hands to yourself. which She's is, right. I, which is Yeah. <laughs> and also ironic, given uh, what I experienced at her, mm-hmm. her hands. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then my mother also said something very profound. She said, you went further in school than I ever did. Just go work. And that's what I did. I just went and worked, and I never went back, you know.
0: Do you think your mom was ever afraid of you after you'd become a man?
1: Yeah. She actually changed the locks and kicked me out of the house, you know. um, And it wasn't so much, I don't think it was a physical afraid. My mother is a hardcore person. She does not play, you know what (laughs) I mean? What my mother she wasn't afraid of me but what she was afraid of was me becoming dependent on her for the rest of my life mm-hmm. the way a lot of males never learn how to take care of themselves you know so that's
0: different that, not you, physically afraid of you afraid no of she, she was like you, you know what
1: i did everything i could what else do you want me to do you've got to figure this out for yourself and at the time i was angry at 22 23 i was like how can my mother turn her back on me You know, but she was trying to tell me, you know, teach me how to fly on my own. I think my mother just was tired, you know what I mean? And she just really, you know, like, what else am I supposed to do? I raised you to 18 the way I was raised to 18, and you've got to figure that out for yourself. And she was right about that, you know. I realized that years later she was absolutely right about that.
0: Before we go back to my conversation with Kevin Powell, I want to remind you to add your short story idea to our crowdsource list. We're collecting ideas for an upcoming collaboration with the public radio show Selected Shorts. We're looking for your favorite short stories about death, sex, or money that are 20 pages or less. You can add them to our list. You can find it at deathsexmoney.org. And check out what other people have suggested there. On the next episode, your stories about why you're not having sex.
2: I'm not having
1: sex
0: because like the old Barry Manilow uh, song, um, the, the, the feeling's gone. I don't know how to get it back. just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Money. We are so excited to see you there.
2: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California.
1: Now it's something called Proposition
2: 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight. Bad. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay, rights gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Flowburn Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Kevin Powell got kicked out of Rutgers, he tried to find work as a writer. At first, it was rough. You moved to New York City after sort of, you're in Newark, you're moving around. Yeah, I
1: lived in a lot, I slept in a bathtub. I was sleeping and, yeah.
0: Yeah, like basically, I mean, functionally homeless in some moments.
1: Yeah, definitely functionally homeless, yeah.
0: Then you get to New York City in the early 90s. Yeah. And I want to ask you first about a piece that ran in essence in September 1992. The Sexist in Me, yeah. Called The Sexist in Me. Mm Mm-hmm. And it starts with another encounter, this time with a woman who you were in a relationship with. Yeah. What happened?
1: Same thing. uh, Anger, explosion. Uh, We had a disagreement and being the typical male that I was at the time didn't want to have a woman disagreeing with me. And so I pushed her into a bathroom door, you know, and she ran out of the apartment. And I remember standing there saying to myself, what did I just do? You know, and now I'm in my 20s, you know, and... Here I was, this person who had all this thing, stuff to say about racism and, you know, racial injustice and racial oppression, but had no vocabulary for what I was doing. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, um, she ended up coming back. I ended up staying there a little longer than I moved out, you know, um, and then I saw her on the street, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later and disrespected her on the street badly, verbally, you know what I'm saying? And that's when I realized that I needed to get some help. And I remember a couple things happened. I was introduced to a book called Mad at Miles by Pearl Klee. And Pearl Kleeg, the book was a, it was a small pamphlet. It was a response to uh, Miles Davis's autobiography. For those who don't know, Miles Davis, we know, is a dynamic musician, you know, one of the greatest musicians ever. But he also was brutal toward women. That affected me because as I was reading Mad at Miles, I was shaking literally because I was like, my God, is she talking about me? I was now in my 20s. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're saying that I'm a patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist man? You know what I mean? And you have to process that.
0: And how did that hit you when one of the kind of primary stories that you had learned kind of emotionally growing up and then intellectually at college was that you had been systemically disempowered by this country to then be confronted with, here's the ways that you're violently trying to dominate. You feel your women.
1: contradiction, you feel like a hypocrite. You feel it you feel it blatantly, you know what I'm saying? And it's interesting because uh I couldn't grasp I couldn't grasp that at the time, you know what I mean? And so when I was in college, if I could take a step back, us ignorant men would say things to the women when they raised their voices, well, you know, homophobic stuff, oh, you must be a lesbian, quote unquote, stuff like that. Just dumb stuff. Just really dumb, ignorant, backwards caveman like stuff we would say anything to justify our power, and our privilege, you know. And um, I don't regret anything in my life uh, at all. I feel bad for people that I hurt, as I talk about at the end of the book. But I feel like I had to go through all those experiences because there's no way I would even begin to think about deconstructing manhood if I hadn't sunk so low.
0: And that's what's interesting about 1992 in your life because you're grappling with these quite complicated issues of identity. Yeah. And And then, then you're also on this new reality show,
1: this little thing (laughs) um
0: and and I just want to ask you a few questions about that which is that you you note in the book you were paid $1,300 when filming began yeah you were paid $1,300 when filming ended so $2,600 in total was it worth it
1: I want a royalty check (laughs) 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 no I mean it's an interesting question because at the time um you know um I was like, okay, I'm in New York. I had like probably like five jobs, I felt like, you know what I'm saying? And I thought to myself, the only thing I thought was like, if I end up on this show, maybe because I'm on TV, I'll get some speaking gigs and some poetry gigs, you know, because this was the beginning of the poetry scene exploding in New York as well, the New York Poets Cafe. I had no idea that all these years later, everybody named Mama would have a reality TV show.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Literally. Thank you. It's you know because of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we created the we created the
1: Kardashians (laughs) I really want to apologize for that (laughs) but I certainly don't have the Kardashian money
0: yeah and just on balance when you think back in that decision and the effect it's had on your life does it feel positive or negative
1: and I don't regret anything. I don't regret the arguments. I don't regret the stuff that we talked about on the show around race. You know, Norman became uh, the first openly gay person on a, on, a, on a national TV show, which was significant. You know what I mean? Uh, Julie, uh, who I had the famous argument with or infamous argument with, worked with a homeless woman on the show. There were so many different things going on that I thought were important. And I learned over the years, even though I sometimes cringe when people bring it up, you know, um, that I had no idea how many people actually watched this thing and said, hey, I was either your age when I was watching this or I was 10 years behind you and this had some sort of impact on me in some way. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, they still quote, come up to me and say, you're lying, racism is race plus power. People say that to me 20 some odd years later, which is profound. And I realized the power of, of popular culture and the irony for me is that I'm a television kid. I grew up loving television, loving pop culture. It really hit me... Um, after we finished taping the show, the producers said, you know, uh, y'all are not going to be able to go to the malls for a while. We're like, OK, what are they telling us? And then all the media came in like we were in Entertainment Weekly and People and, you know, all these different publications. Then we went to the Video Music Award and they were screaming for us like we were the Beatles. It blew my mind, you know what I mean? And then they, the, the, some folks, our handlers, I guess they call them, gave us, this is in L.A., they said, here's some kissy candy, some Hershey kissies, throw it to your fans. So we throw it to our fans. And they're like, oh, my God, I just got a kissy from Kevin. I was just like, who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But then I learned very quickly, as fast as this fame happens or this celebrity happens, it ends because they started taping the second season. And uh, someone I went to college with, Bill Bellamy, who's a comedian, Mm -hmm. you all know, he ended up hosting something called MTV Jams. And so within about six months, I'm walking around in New York, you know, like, okay, I'm Kevin Powell from Vibe and MTV. And people come running up to me. Hey, Bill Bellamy from MTV Jams. (laughs) They actually called me Bill Bellamy. And I was like, no, I'm not Bill Bellamy, but I am black. I'm the
0: other black guy. (laughs) I'm the other black guy.
1: (laughs) But so I was fortunate that I had a real career. It
0: did begin this white hot period in your career where you're yeah. writing for Vibe, yeah. you're going to industry parties. It's it's a moment when hip hop is is becoming mainstream in yeah. America, and you're yeah. chronicling it right in the middle of it. Yeah. I want to skip over that period to when it ends in 1996. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> because we're running out of time, but you're I smooth <laughs> <laughs> because. That moment—that's—that's that's when you're fired from Vibe. Yeah, for arguing. For arguing. Yeah, you're broke. I'm broke. You start drinking.
1: I was drinking, a lot.
0: What did you learn about money that you hadn't learned when you had it?
1: Spend it as fast as possible. I didn't learn anything. You know, um, I was making a tremendous amount of money for a writer in his twenties. You know, the 1990s was, a, I mean, Clinton was the president of the United States. You know, um, it was it was a lot of wealth being created out there. And some of y'all, you know, the dot com stuff we see today, that was actually created in the late 1990s. There was so much money flowing and I just didn't know what to do with all of that stuff. Uh, and it crashed and burned. And I was also. What's
0: pre- that mean, crashing? Did that mean like credit card debt? Did that mean? No, nah, it-
1: I just spent money. I just spent money, you know, Um, and then at a certain point, depression kicked in. Something that I talk about in the book that I battled a huge part of my life, you know, Uh, um, and, you know, I felt embarrassed that I had gotten fired. You know, I felt like a failure all over again. The same feeling I had for a period of time when I got kicked out of college. I mean, yeah, out of college. I felt, but this was actually bigger to me because I was like, this is a bigger platform, you know, and um, I remember people making fun of me like, well, Kevin Powell, he fell off, ha, 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 you know, and you know again there's still you're still that person carrying around the lack of healing the lack of self-love the low self-esteem you know the pain and trauma and it all is resurfacing you know because you don't have this thing to fall back on which was this 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 career you know and people who know me well remember in that period i not only was i drinking and smoking cigarettes and hanging out and just highly irresponsible but i would wear my hats down low and not really want to show my face and It it went on for a few years. I call it my dark years. And I remember, um, you know, I felt like Kurt Cobain must have felt, you know, I was affected by his death, by Tupac's death, by Biggie's death, by River Phoenix's death, because I saw people of my generation dying, you know, and I didn't want to live, you know. Um, I really didn't want to be alive. I didn't want to be alive. I I, I just wanted to go somewhere. I didn't know where to go, you know. I didn't love writing anymore. I didn't love really anything. Um, And it wasn't really until 9-11 hit that I felt like I was shaken out of this stoop, this thing, man, and to know people who died there and to see it. And I remember what I did, (sighs) you know, if anyone who's a New Yorker remembers or old enough to remember, I remember walking around. Remember how they had pictures up of all the people? Did you see my mother? Did you see my father? Did you see my sister and brother? And that had such a profound effect on me, you know. And I was like, Kev, you got to get yourself together, man. You know, I never did AA or anything like that. I don't know if I would... I don't know, I don't think I say in a book that I thought I was an alcoholic, but I definitely used to drink to go to sleep. Uh, I drank every chance I got. You know, I didn't care at times. Um, but I actually just went cold turkey. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I remember for a while I couldn't even go to a bar or anything. I just didn't go. You know? And then when I finally went, I just drank cranberry juice and had no idea I'd be a vegan in a marathon runner all these years later. <laughs> I'd have been like, you crazy. I ain't doing that stuff. But... It was the beginning of, of of figuring out what self-love is, you know. And, Kev, you, not only you, you can't hurt yourself, you can't hurt other people, man. You can't keep doing this. You know what I'm saying?
0: And that's what your book kind of, what I like about it is it doesn't, doesn't tell the story that you get kicked out of Rutgers and you go to therapy and then you're fixed. No. It, it shows that this has been something that you're constantly sort of confronting in various yeah. ways and yeah. life doesn't go your way. Yeah. New things surface again. Yeah. Um, when you feel yourself getting angry uh, in in like what what have you what has changed in behavior and what happens now that didn't happen in 1991 i don't
1: fight anymore I, i'm too old to fight. <laughs> You know, I do yoga. I just I can't do that. Do I get angry? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being angry. There's a difference between proactive anger and reactionary anger. And I learned okay, proactive anger means I'm going to write this stuff out. You know, I'm going to speak it out. That's why I look. That's how I deal with it now. The reactionary anger is when you not only uh, uh, lash out and you try to hurt people. I'm very conscious. And even when it seems like I'm not listening, I really am listening. You know, I, I've learned to be a better listener. And I really am serious about healing, man, and and self love and and. You know, um, I think about something that Maya Angelou said, you know, people may not remember what you said to them, but they remember how you made them feel. And I think about that a lot now in a way I didn't before. Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s. Maybe it's because of all the stuff I describe in a book that I've survived, you know, and maybe it's just basic common sense. You know, um, I take the best parts of my mother and my family. I love them forever. They're my family. My mother's had my back in a way no one has ever had my back in my life. You know, but there's certain things I've had to evolve past. And I also say that I've had to evolve past those other Kevins.
0: Kevin Powell. His new book is The Education of Kevin Powell. We spoke at the Green Space at WNYC Studios in New York. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Boteen, James Ramsey, Destry Sibley, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Jennifer Sendro and the whole team at The Green Space at WNYC. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can do it by texting us. Just text the word newsletter to 69866, and we'll text you back to get you signed up right then and there. Again, text the word newsletter to 69866. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.